Hello and welcome to Two Cans and a String. I'm your host, Jax. Bit of an update for you guys today. It is lockdown level three today. It changed in New Zealand and uh, more people can get out and about. Those who are lonely can expand their bubble to their family. If it's for your mental health, you can expand it out to reach out to some friends, but you still can't really go out and party. Still got a lot of social distancing. But yeah, there's a few changes and there's a few more people out and about. Now I really have to look left and right when crossing the road when I go on my walks. So yeah, that's the big change. What have I been up to uh, in the last week or so? I've been productive in other ways. I haven't really done too much on the old podcast, but it did take me a while to research for this episode. I've just been mucking around a lot, having a lot of laughs, cracking up. Got actually something that was pretty cool. Um, my friend Vicky, want to do a little shout out to her. She is doing a local project, um, keeping up her photography, where she's documenting people's doorsteps. So anybody who wants a photo of their bubble or who's in their bubble, they can reach out to Vicky and I'll put the link in my bio. So if anyone in the Queenstown area wants to get a portrait and donate some money, it all goes back into the local um, economy to help people who might be struggling through this time. But it's also just a little bit of fun just so that you've got a photographic reminder of you professionally taken whilst you're in your bubble. So We went out and took a few funny photos, so I'm really looking forward to seeing those. And we actually saw her taking photos of another house in front of us, so it's quite cool. And she said that she's had all sorts of people. Um, Some people have just been completely naked, other people have been in ballerina costumes. So yeah, it's pretty cool. And then I think she's going to make it into a book, so if you can pop along, even if you want to donate, that'd be awesome, and um, support her that'd be great so the link will be in the bio of this episode yay quick announcement at the beginning of this episode you may hear some crashing and banging in the background that is Fiona she is only five foot something and she makes the sound of a giant sometimes no you can hear a mouse fart in our house but uh, she is vigorously cleaning the dishes so I do apologize for that so during my week um, Shuka who's in our bubble who lives next door she had her birthday and we had a few wines and we ended up talking about a whole lot of random stuff and somehow it just sparked a memory of of mine and led to the story of what I'm covering today and that is the stalking of Laura Black. So I'm going to start by thanking some sources, there's quite a few, Um, workplaceviolence911.com, thoughtcatalogue.com, murderpedia.com, listverse.com, wikipedia, the nzherald.co.nz and abc7news.com. Cool beans, we're going to get right on into it. This is a story about unwanted attention leading to stalking, murder and the survival of four individuals. It was 1984, in the heart of Silicon Valley located in Sunnyvale, California. ESL, which stands for Electromagnetic Systems Labs Limited, 
was a premier defence contractor and respected landmark in the growing electronics industry. Sporting a modern office complex with an overall workforce of 200 people, ESL provided its employees with a comfortable working environment and had a great team environment amongst the staff. It was, by any standard, an exciting place to work with unparalleled business innovations and modern management style. It was here at ESL that Laura Black met her colleague Richard Wade Farley for the first time. Laura was 22 years old at the time. She had thick dark hair to her shoulders. She was petite but athletic. I mean, it was the 80s. Most people were still petite back then. They hadn't really had so many takeaway options as what we have now. She had brown eyes, a great smile, and was considered an attractive, lovely and approachable woman. She also was intelligent as she had earned her college degree and with that was employed as an engineer at ESL. It was at this time and this workplace Richard Wade Farley would arrive as a software technician in search of a new career. There would have been every reason for Farley to look forward to the future with optimism when he joined the company after leaving the military. This was a great opportunity in a growing industry for Farley, who had, through his 10 years in the Navy, trained in computer technology and earned awards for good conduct and marksmanship. Richard Farley was a pudgy, tall guy. He wore glasses, had dark hair and a beard, and had a puffy face. He had the early signs of middle age looming over him. Well, ain't that a pretty picture? Wonder how his Tinder profile would be. He was also a collector of power tools, sweet belts and a bro, weapons, cool, 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 and numerous books dealing with sex and violence. And that makes me think, what would anybody say about me reading Jack Reacher novels? I think maybe different kind of sex and violence, right? Still, Richard Farley reported to work that first day with no idea that he would forever leave his mark on Laura Black, ESL and the state of California. His legacy would be one of unforgettable mayhem, that of one of California's most vicious workplace murderers. From the moment Farley was introduced to Laura, an electrical engineer who had worked at the company for less than a year, he was obsessed with her. At the company function where they first met, she spoke easily to him during the encounter, unaware that Farley had already decided he would have her, one way or another. Later, recalling their first meeting during court testimony, Farley said, I think I fell instantly in love with her. It was just one of those things, I guess. Laura Black at first had no inkling of Richard Wade Farley's instant infatuation with her. Romance obsession, a type of delusional disorder, sometimes referred to as erotomania, has received a good deal of attention in the media because of stalking activities and violence committed against well-known public personalities, like that of John Hinckley, who stalked and shot President Reagan in an effort to impress actress Jodie Foster. However, this form of deviant behaviour also occurs with surprising frequency in the workplace and, in some situations, can be the precursor to cases of extreme violence. But 43 years is a long time. Farley had asked Laura out on a date, but when she declined his advances, he began leaving gifts, including cards and homemade bread, on her desk. Despite her refusals, Farley persisted. 
During the three and a half years following that initial meeting, Farley would write some two to three hundred letters to Laura, sending one or two letters per week. Now, before we go any further, I did find some statistics online about stalking. This is combined data from the UK, US and Australia, and some of it varies overall, but the environment there is similar to New Zealand, so it's being used to provide a general idea of what New Zealanders might be experiencing. The info shows, you are more likely to be stalked by a former or current intimate partner. In descending order, the other groups from where a stalker can come include acquaintances, strangers, current and former colleagues and family. Women are more likely to be stalked than men, with the global average being around 1 in every 4 to 7 women stalked and 1 in every 6 to 13 males. Both men and women stalk. Anyone can be a stalker. Age, race, social status, criminal history, education, relationship to the victim have no impact on who can be a stalker. Stalkers often suffer from low self-esteem, psychological illness, drug dependency, sociopathic tendencies, depression and delusions. The cause of a stalker's actions are more likely to be linked to a mental health issue rather than purely criminal intent. Some act of physical violence is reported in approximately 44% of cases worldwide, with an estimated 15% of cases resulting in a homicide, which is pretty grim. The average length for a stalking episode is between 6 months and 2 years, with the longest recorded stalking lasting 43 years, guys. 43 years. Like when you're a kid, that's old. When you're 36, it's not really that old. Any continued unwanted or concerning contact lasting more than two weeks should be considered a serious issue. There is no way to resolve a stalking situation uh, by yourself, and cyber stalking is on the increase globally, so be careful out there. The psychological effect of stalking on a victim is the most, often the most traumatic impact on the victim. In the cases of stranger stalking, for the victim, it's not knowing who is stalking them, where they are, why they are stalking, or the final aim that is the most traumatic. It's the unknown. It is estimated that one in eight victims who are the subject of stalking miss work because of the stalking, and one in seven victims will move their residences. Victims of stalkers have also shown to have higher rates of anxiety, fear, paranoia, isolation, insomnia and depression as compared with the general populace. The sad byproduct of stalking was many victims lose the support of those around them with friends and family withdrawing from the victim because they felt the stalking was consuming the victim and that they could not see an end to it. And the effects of stalking can be long-lasting or lasting and can impact the can impact the victim long after the offending has stopped. So it's pretty serious, obviously. If anybody out there is or has encountered it, you can prevent it. You can learn how to identify stalking behaviours and personalities. You can limit your public profile on social media. Um, you can be proactive in maintaining your residential and personal security. Alter your daily or weekly routines. And you obviously should seek advice from the police. And there's actually stalking specialists out there um, if you have any concerns. 
remember people are capable of anything so don't be a statistic if you think somebody's behavior is being weird and inappropriate do something about it politeness you know it's not going to get you anywhere so remember many stalkers have underlying psychological issues that you alone cannot resolve so yeah you definitely need to reach out and ask for help and if you ever encounter anybody who is talking to you about a, a potential stalker then support them and advise them of that public health announcement over back to our story at this stage Farley is leaving gifts and writing Laura an abundance of letters he also fools the HR department by giving false info in a way to obtain Laura's personal information her home address and number from there he would constantly follow her to and from work drive past her house He'd call her home at all hours and even went on to befriend the custodial department so he could obtain a copy of her desk keys. He would then rifle through her belongings in order to gain further insight into her personal life. At one point, he learnt that Laura was to visit her parents who lived in Virginia in December of 1984. Farley broke into her desk at the office, obtained the address of her parents and wrote letters to her while she was staying with them in Virginia. That's so creepy. It's the last thing you want when you're at home for Christmas, eh? Then there was that other time he joined the aerobics class to remain as close as possible to Laura. Real inconspicuous in your leotard there, Farley. But, I mean, like, how unsettling for Laura to have this harassment, you know, not only, like, letters at her parents' house in Virginia, but, you know, letters two to three times a, a week, gifts all this unwanted attention and then you see this pudgy, sweaty Farley in your aerobics class. Like, the poor girl. Throughout 1984 and 1985, his letters were not overtly threatening, but that was to change as Laura continued to thwart his advances. Although Farley dated another woman and eventually proposed and lived with her in his San Jose bungalow, he still attempted twice to move in the same apartment building where Laura lived. When at work or approaching her on the street, Farley would often ask for a date but would inevitably be turned aside by the polite and naturally gentle Laura. These rejections would inevitably bring on reoccurring protestations and endless restatements of his limitless love for her. She would do what she could to avoid him and deter his advances. He would respond by doubling his efforts with more telephone calls, more harassment, more gifts and incessant car trips past her home. Laura would be forced to move four times during these years as Farley's harassment continued unabated at work, at her apartment complex and even while she was on shopping trips. Eventually Farley could no longer take no for an answer and his tactics became more aggressive and cruel. He would make derogatory statements about Laura and rifle through her locked desk in search of even more information about her personal life and activities away from work. It seemed that every effort Laura made to avoid Farley was answered with further encounters with him, each contact becoming more offensive than the previous here was a man who had obviously succumbed to an obsession which was quickly approaching a violent finale. Laura Black was running out of options. 
her life had become hell, thanks to Richard Wade Farley. By the autumn of 1985, Richard Farley had pursued Laura so vehemently that she turned to the Human Resources Department of ESL for help. Farley was told he must attend psychological counselling sessions and stop harassing Laura if he wanted to keep his job. Although Farley attended the required counselling sessions on a regular schedule, the harassment did not diminish. It only escalated. During the period he was attending counselling, Farley made a duplicate copy of Laura Black's house key, which she had inadvertently left on her desk. Rather than using the key to gain entry to her apartment, Farley displayed the key and a handwritten note on the dashboard of her car so that Laura and others would know he could get to her at any time. His driving excursions past her home and his telephone, telephone calls to her late at night increased. The letters he wrote to Laura became more and more threatening, sometimes referring to his large gun collection. Finally, in 1986, Farley could no longer control his growing anger at Laura's continuing rejections. He publicly threatened her life if she would not relinquish to his desire to have her for himself. Farley also began threatening other employees at ESL, including a manager, who he warned about his gun collection, his expertise with guns, and the fact that he could, quote, take people with him if provoked. Farley delighted in setting up impossible situations for Laura, taking her lack of answer as an affirmative, and any communication, even negative, as encouragement. For example, he called and left a message to set up a date which she ignored, and since she didn't say no, he showed up at her door in anticipation. When she told him to go away, he took it as proof that she was playing games with him. Like, I, I find it bad enough when you might be in a bar and a guy approaches you. And look, I'm not saying that I'm unapproachable. I'm pretty approachable. But sometimes you can get a vibe from somebody. When some people approach you, it's open, it's friendly, and you can spark a conversation, and then you've met somebody, and it's awesome. And then there's other times where somebody can approach you, you might be polite, and then they take that as, I'm going to stick around. And I've had it many a times where people are like, well, you're a fucking stuck-up bitch, aren't you? And I'm like, no, I'm not, actually. But your vibe is not one that I want to be around. I was polite to you. I've said hello, I haven't been rude, but because I've said no, I don't want to continue chatting with you, you've then taken it as a personal slur against you. So I can only imagine what it's like to have this 24-7, like we think that's an inconvenience in a bar, just think about what it would be like if this is your daily life. Poor girl. There was also evidence that Farley tried testing code combinations for hours on a garage opener trying to open Laura's garage. ESL management by now were very concerned about Farley's bizarre behavioural patterns terminated him in May of 1986. They were clearly concerned about Laura's safety as well as others in the organisation. Now some of you may be thinking what the hell is going on with keeping him employed for this long but ESL itself was a large facility you know 200 employees and management had ensured that he worked in a separate area to the main team of 12 where Laura worked. 
Even as Farley was being fired from his job, an ESL manager warned Laura once more about his uncontrollable obsession and the company's concern for her safety. Still, even the termination from his $36,000 a year position would not dissuade Farley. In fact, in a letter he penned to Laura just before he was fired from his job, Farley wrote, quote, Once I'm fired, you won't be able to control me ever again. Pretty soon, I'll crack under the pressure and run amok and destroy everything in my path. End quote. His words proved prophetic? No. His words proved prophetic in the extreme. For the next year and a half, Farley continued to harass Laura. He was experiencing economic hardships, lost two houses, and found himself in trouble with the IRS for back taxes. But none of this seemed to matter to him. He thought constantly about Laura and increased his efforts to gain her infection. Infection? Affection. Whoa! Too much COVID-19 talk. The fact that he could no longer see her at work did nothing to check his pursuit of Laura. The telephone calls continued, as did his habit of following her whenever he could. By November 1987, his letters to Laura were so huge the amount of letters he was writing and overtly threatening. In that month, he wrote, You cost me a job, $40,000 in equity taxes I can't pay, and a foreclosure, yet I still like you. Why do you want to find out how far I'll go? End quote. Closing his letter, Farley threatened Laura again, quote, I absolutely will not be pushed around, and I'm beginning to get tired of being nice. End quote. Laura, in fear of her life, and completely victimised by the ever-present Farley, eventually sought and was granted a temporary restraining order against him. The order forbade him from approaching within 300 yards of Miss Black and ordered him to not contact her in any manner. The order was served against Richard Wade Farley on February 8, 1988, with a hearing scheduled for the matter on February 17, 1988. For Farley, this temporary restraining order was an act of ultimate abandonment on Laura's part. He now knew without question that Laura would never submit to his advances. All that was left for Farley was revenge, and he already had much of what he needed to take that course. Still, on February the 9th, 1988, Farley purchased a new 12-gauge semi-automatic shotgun and ammunition for his arsenal of personal re- weapons. He spent 2k that day, despite his financial problems, just to be sure that he had everything he needed. When Farley returned to the offices of his former employer on Tuesday, February 16th, 1988, two days after Valentine's Day and one day before Laura's restraining order became permanent, He was clearly prepared for maximum violence. It was just after 3pm as he drove his rented motor home into the ESL parking lot. He was armed with his new shotgun, a rifle, two handguns, spare ammo strapped across his chest and a container of gasoline. In all, Farley carried nearly 45 kgs or 100 pounds of firearms and ammo which he transferred from the motorhome to his body in preparation for the assault on ESL. 
That's literally like carrying the weight of a 13-year-old boy around with you in ammunition. That's totally screwed up. Before Farley decided to enter the building, he sat alone in his motorhome in the company's parking lot, contemplating whether he should go ahead with his plans. According to authorities, once they had interviewed Farley, this is when he had decided he would go through with it. He said he wanted to show the people who had laughed at him and that he didn't want to be considered a wimp. Well, big big man pants. That's right, he's got a big boy boots on. Walking across the parking lot to the office building, Farley shot and killed his first victim, 46-year-old data processing specialist Lawrence J. Kane, who Farley actually did know. He then approached the building entrance and blasted his way through the locked glass doors, heading directly for Laura's office. Reloading his weapon from a bandolier swung over his shoulder, for anyone that doesn't know what a bandolier is, just think Arnold Schwarzenegger, Commando, it's like one of those bullet belts that's slung over like a beauty queen sash. Hi, I'm here to save the world or destroy it. Okay, I totally went off there, sorry. Back to it. Reloading his weapon as he walked through the hallways, he fired at least 50 times, seemingly shooting at everybody he encountered. As the shots echoed through the complex, employees ran out the door, jumped out windows, and barricaded themselves in their offices. Making his way to Laura's location, Farley fired indiscriminately at anyone in his path. Before reaching Laura, Farley had shot six employees, Wayne Buddy Williams Jr., 23, Ronald G. Doney, 36, Joseph Lawrence Silver, 43, Glenda Moritz, 27, Ronald Stephen Reed, 26, and Helen Lepita, 49, four of which died instantly from powerful blasts from his semi-automatic shotgun. Hearing all the chaos outside of her office, Laura slammed and locked the door, hoping to find some refuge. Alas, it was to no avail. Farley levelled his shotgun at the office door and blew it right off the hinges. Jumping past the shattered door and moving swiftly towards Laura's desk, he raised the shotgun again and fired twice. The first shot missed, but the second critically wounded Laura severing arteries, tearing muscles, and destroying bone in her shoulder and her spine. Although losing a great deal of blood and an unimaginable pain, Laura was able to avoid Farley by hiding in an adjoining office and then making a run, making a run for it into the parking lot where by that time waiting ambulances and a SWAT team had arrived. During his rampage, Farley killed seven employees and wounded another four, including Laura. At the end of his murderous siege, which lasted for five hours, Farley surrendered to a police SWAT team and asked for a Coca-Cola and a sandwich because he was hungry. The other survivors, aside from Laura, were Gregory Scott, Richard Townsley and Patty Market. That sounds like a patty market, like, come on down to the market, I've got fresh patties for y'all. Hmm? No? Sorry, patty. 
Not much is reported of Laura after her survival. Understandably, she didn't want any further unwanted attention after having four years of unwanted attention. But Gregory Scott did recount his survival. He said, quote, I was face down on the floor and my glasses were filling full of blood and I thought, I'm the only one in this room. That blood's got to be from me. I've been shot. Gregory was hit in the finger and face by buckshot when Farley burst into ESL. As he lay on the floor of his office, this is what went through his mind for about a minute. Quote, You've been shot. You're bleeding profusely. You're probably going to bleed to death, he said. He doesn't recall any pain, even with a pallet lodged in his neck. However, it was a long wait, over an hour, before he could leave because Farley was in an adjacent office. When he could escape, his brain gave him what some would call X-ray vision. Gregory said, Everything from the moment I opened the door to the office that I was in till the time I was at the bottom of the stairs was in black and white. I knew I could not step anywhere, it was black. I learned later on that day that I'd actually stepped over two bodies of my colleagues on the way out. A ceramic cut nicked by the same buckshot that struck him is a rare reminder of the ESL massacre. But his mind still remembers his brush with death and it has permanently modified his behaviour. He said, you can't go into a room anymore without checking out two exits. You go into a conference room and you want to be seated next to one of the doors. It changes everything about your life. Gregory received counselling and he says he's doing fine. However, he does say that some of his co-survivors crawled into a shell. But I mean, that's completely understandable, right? Throughout the standoff, law enforcement personnel later recounted that Farley expressed no remorse for what he had done and in fact appeared to be pretty stoked in the mayhem and chaos surrounding his actions. The once pristine ESL officers had become a war zone of dead and wounded. Videos and photographs of the events that day clearly depict the heroic efforts of law enforcement officials, helping those employees fortunate enough to escape Farley's revenge as they scurried for any cover they could find. The injured, including a critically wounded Laura Black, were rushed away for treatment as members of the SWAT team eventually ushered Richard Wade Farley from ESL for the final time. The day after Farley's rampage, Family Court Commissioner Lois Kittle declared the restraining order obtained by Laura a few weeks earlier as permanent. It was clearly a symbolic but important act. A tearful commissioner, in making her pronouncement, said, pieces of paper do not stop bullets. On that day, it was uncertain if Laura would survive to testify against Farley. Laura spent 19 days in hospital, recovering from the attack. Surprisingly, she continued to work for the same company for a few years afterwards, along with some of her other um, colleagues and survivors. Gregory was one of them. Farley wrote her yet again from his prison cell, claiming that she had finally won. Farley went on trial in 1991, charged with seven counts of capital murder and four additional felonies. In his testimony, Farley admitted that he knew he should not have harassed Laura, but claimed he could not help himself. He argued that he had instantly fallen in love with his former co-worker, saying, The more she tries to push me away, 
the more I tried to not have her push me away. Creep much? During the trial, Farley admitted to the killings, but pleaded not guilty, claiming that he had never planned to kill, but only wished to get Laura's attention or commit suicide in front of her for rejecting him. Wow, what a great plan. There's some way, it's, it's just like a peacock fanning his feathers, isn't it? His attorney claimed that Farley never was a violent man and only had his judgment temporarily clouded by his obsession for Laura and that Farley, who had no previous criminal history, will likely never kill again. Yeah, right. According to his testimony, Laura's final response to his incessant attempts to date her was that she would not go out with him even if I was the last man on earth. During the course of the trial, Laura, still in obvious pain from her injuries, was able to testify that she had not encouraged Farley in any way, but had in fact made extraordinary efforts to avoid him and deter his advances. Having been grievously wounded during the siege of February 16, 1988, Laura made a compelling witness against the remorseless Farley. It was clear that she had truly been through hell. On October 21, 1991, the jury found Richard Wade Farley guilty of seven counts of capital murder and four additional felonies. The following month, on November the 1st, 1991, the same jury, after only a single day of deliberation, recommended the death penalty for Richard Farley. On January the 17th, 1992, Superior Court Judge Joseph Byerford Jr. sentenced Farley to death in the gas chamber. In passing the sentence, the judge described Farley as a vicious killer who demonstrated a complete disregard for human life. Farley was remanded in San Quentin Prison, north of San Francisco, to await his required appeals and eventual execution. The incredible nightmare of Laura Black had finally reached a kind of conclusion, and in a legal sense, justice was served. But for seven of Laura's co-workers and friends, and for Laura herself, now permanently disabled as a result of the vicious attack, there may never be a final and satisfactory resolution to the heinous crimes of Richard Wade Farley. Farley himself is still alive in San Quentin Prison, and ESL dissolved, and the building was knocked down in the early 2000s. So, the, the thing to take away from this, guys, is... With you being in level 4 lockdown here in New Zealand, at least you couldn't really leave your house to to see anybody to acquire a stalker. So hopefully there wasn't any stalking over the past month and, uh, you know, it could be worse, couldn't it? You could could be dealing with that kind of malarkey. So you're probably thinking, how in the heck does this even relate to my life and has Jack's been stalked and I thought at first nah not that I can think of no I definitely haven't but then I ended up watching telly and it sparked a memory and <laughs> turns out I completely forgot I have been stalked um I lived in Auckland at the time I was working on police 107 I had just moved out of the flat that was across the road from the crazy woman who shat on my friend's windscreen. And um, that's an earlier episode. If you haven't heard that one, 
go and check it out. And um, I, when I was about 18 or 19, I'd met this guy and we had a brief relationship, which he, so I found all that out when I, you know, called to catch up with him and his flat, you know, when you call a landline back in the day, so his flatmate answered the phone and said, oh, didn't you hear? Ended. But it, it turns out he actually had severe mental health issues and he got committed and taken down to Wellington to be close to his family and, and be in a, um, a hospital down there. This guy that I, I was seeing, he actually started stalking the flatmate's girlfriend. They called the, you know, the police and mental health interjected and that's how he ended up in Wellington. I, um, you know, felt bad. I thought, geez, you know, this is a mental health issue. He had um, schizophrenia. So that was fine, but it, it is hard to be the person to talk you down from the highs and lows of mental health. I kept loosely in touch with him over the three years over the telephone. I get random phone calls from him over the three years, and um, and I carried on with my life just normal as ever, you know, mucking around, getting up to mischief, and uh, working on police ten seven, traveling around the country. And I'd recently been in Rotorua, and I had my first death threat. Uh, that's a whole other story, which I'll tell on another tale. But that's where I gained my first death threat from a mob member, and um, which is a gang. If you are from overseas, Mongol mob is a gang. And I get all these random phone calls from my old flat. So I get a phone call from Ehaya, my old flatmate, Emo. Anyway, while I was working on my next job for Police Ten Seven, I happened to be up in Kaitaia, which is north of Auckland. Well, we called him Emo because he was gluten intolerant, and that was back in the day when people really weren't gluten intolerant, but this guy completely is, you know, celiac. So he used to get upset every time we'd eat bread in front of him, so we used to tease him a lot. He's good good value. Shout out to Ehaya. Hey, Emo. Emo gives me a call. He's like, hey, man. Some random Māori dude showed up to the flat thinking you're still living here. And I was like, oh, you didn't tell him, oh, you didn't tell him where I lived, do you? And she's like, he said, oh, nah, but he was a bit strange and totally knew the flat, like knew where you were and um, came in and wanted to show me videos of Māori tribal wars and stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a bit weird. He's like, yeah, it was. I had to ask him to leave because I was running late for uni. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, oh, just be careful, you know, and I was like, okay, thanks for the heads up, man, I was like, who the heck could this be, you know, and this is like, I'm probably about 21, and when I first met this guy, not any higher, but the the guy with schizophrenia, I met him when I was about 18 or 19, I get a phone call from my mate Kinta, who works the, well, who worked the reception uh, for the production company that filmed Police 107, and she's like, hey, man, and I was like, what's up? She's like, dude, this like real scary Maldi guy came looking for you. Um, knew that you'd worked here, knew that you worked for Police Ten Seven. Just thinking maybe it's something to do with that death threat you got. And I was like, oh crap, man, I'm getting hunted by the mob. This is no good, you know. And uh, you know, she described what he looked like, and I'd gotten gotten a description from email as well. And I kind of put two and two together, and I was like, that doesn't. That sounds like old mate, you know. And uh, then I get these, this phone call 
and it's from old mate, and he's he's like, oh, hey, I've hitchhiked all the way from Wellington to Auckland to be with you. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm ready to get married, and we'll build a house together, and we'll raise our family together. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, look, you know, I've I've put a lot of thought into it, and I'm ready to to have have that family, you know. And um, I was like. Oh, settle, settle down, tie ho, man. I don't know what what you're talking about. You know, um, you've been living in Wellington for three years, and I've been living in Auckland. So this, I don't know where you're coming from. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're having my baby. And I was like, what? And so in the end, I had to basically break up with him, or I mean tell him he can't contact me anymore so you know I had to say look this is not okay this is if you know you've made this up and we weren't engaged nor were we ready to start a family um you know sorry you've made all this effort that you've come all the way to Auckland but I can't I can't be a part of this you know so I, you know, it wasn't too um, terrifying for me, but it was unsettling. And he did listen to what I said and didn't contact me. He has actually reached out in the last couple of years, but I've decided to keep that at bay because you could open up a whole another can of worms. But yes, I did have somebody come all the way from Wellington to Auckland, which is an eight-hour drive, um, and then go to all of my old haunts to try and find me. So a little bit of a stalker episode, uh, story there. But the main story that I actually was going to go into actually comes down to when I was a student at Epsom Girls Grammar School. I went to two boarding schools when I was a teenager and one of them was in the mighty Waikato and the other one was in Auckland. And Epsom Girls, it was shortened to eggs, and we used to get taunted with eggs, eggs, spread your legs. And we also used to get called seamen because our uniforms made us look like sailors. And I'd obviously told all my colleagues and my flatmates and my friends about it because it made a good story. Um, yeah, so I was at boarding school, 15, 16. And usually you'd go home on the weekends, but this time it was one summer day and I'd stayed in for the weekend. So the hostel part, is a quite quite a big area, so you you have th- a block for the thirteen year olds, a block for the fourteen year olds, so on and so forth, up to seventeen. There was common rooms, there was a big kitchen and dining hall, um, ablution blocks, and then for those of you who have no idea what I said then, toilet blocks uh, with showers and whatnot, and then you also had your yeah, just your grounds, but that was all fully fenced in with like tennis court high fencing, right? So we're in a nice sunny spot on the grass, there's trees around us and we're in between two of the blocks where the girls slept and we're out there sunbathing and it was a Saturday and I'd spilt coconut oil all over my stomach so I was burning to a lovely prawn colour. Um, I don't actually tan, just a fun fact. I go off-white. Um, so I'm your friend who likes to sit in the shade because the sun and I do not get along. I appreciate it. It's great. 
but it doesn't like my skin and it burns me to a little crisp and I don't get any of the benefits of a sweet tan. Anyway, so I'm there trying to wipe up a bottle of coconut oil that I've, I don't even know how I managed to do it, but I'm a clumsy person, so no surprises there. And all of a sudden you just sort of hear this like grunting and we turn around and there's this guy like fully got his dick out, wanking, looking at us, you know, while, while we're sunbathing, like these 15 year old girls sunbathing. So we obviously start screaming and call the matrons and security and he runs off through through the school because the prop the hostel was actually located on the school property. Then there was another time where we where I was in my block, so there was all of us, we were fifteen year old girls, and we've all got our own individual rooms and it was a hot night and I'd slept you had double windows, but they had security catches on them for A, so that we couldn't escape, and B, that we couldn't smuggle in boys into our rooms, I think was the main one. But it was also just a security thing, because there's a lot of weirdos in Auckland. And um, I'm a, I'm asleep with my back to the window, and I'm facing the wall, and then I just hear screaming and running up and down the hallway. And so I'm like, shut the hell up we're trying to sleep here and then all of a sudden you just hear like room after room is like girls screaming 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 like domino effect and there was a guy in the middle of the night had decided to jump over the fence so he's actually on the hostel grounds again dick out having a wank looking through every window to see sleeping teenage girls like proper creep stuff but luckily security found him chased after him and caught him, so the police came and got, got that guy. And then there was, I mean, this all came from this school. This school, we had so many of these encounters. And, like, we, we told them all, but you can't have police on site 24-7. So, sounds like it happened every day. No, it was just every other day. And um, we had another time where I had stayed again on school grounds for the weekend and my friends, there was two of us, uh, three of us actually, we were walking from the hostel through the school to head to Newmarket um, Shopping Centre to hang out and be more rats. And as we're walking along, we see the guy who had been wanking at us whilst we were sunbathing that time. And so I yelled out, sillily, but also, you know, like that teenager, like, I'm indestructible kind of yell I was like you pervert you pervert you wanker and then he started he, he ran full speed like the movie get out when the, the caretaker is running full speed at them it's exactly like what he was doing luckily hey it turns out I can run not the fittest person but my little teenage legs picked me up and the three of us ran screaming through this empty school and he's running behind us trying to like catch us and then we just went into Newmarket we managed to lose him get into Newmarket and just carried on with our day like oh yeah that was a bit of excitement crazy we also used to have this dairy called the Poppin Dairy and it was a race after school to get down there because next to it was a fish and chip shop slash Chinese takeaways and um, if you got there before 
3.30, you could get the leftovers in the hot hot bit, you know, with, where they would keep chicken nuggets and wontons and whatnot. You could fill a container, a polystyrene container, of anything there for like $3. So we would run down or fast walk down to the fish and chip shop to get that Chinese takeaways. And there was always this one office building as you're walking down from the hostel to the end of the street. And it's not that long, but there's a long hedge that you walk along past to get there. Say it's like two blocks. And at the end of the hedge, at this one point, it cuts off to like a driveway to an office building. And then there's like a little like alcove to the doorway where it's got a pin pad to go up into the building. And so we were always aware that this alcove was there because this happened so often that you'd come along the edge of the hedge and just where it ended, you would pretty much guaranteed to see a guy in a bloody trench coat and he'd turn around and he'd be like, hey, and then he'd flash his dick at you. But you would always be with friends. We always knew to walk together. And so we would all point and laugh and then run as fast as we can down to the dairy. This happened many times like we had to call the police about it we had to tell the matrons about it but it still continued to happen I I think I probably got flashed I can definitely remember about six times so I'd say there's funnier stories but yeah so there's a lot of sickos out there but it totally reminded me of that and how um crazy that it's so normal it's but it's not normal but it was normal and that this is quite a normal thing to happen to girls at some stage at least once in their life to be flashed by somebody's dick now you get it with dick pics you know people send you unwanted dick pics just for shits and giggles great mate you know i don't want that i didn't i didn't sign up for that so word to the wise for anybody out there listening thinking maybe she wants to see my dick no Nobody wants to see your dick, so put it away. Put it away. So thanks for joining me on that kind of dark story there, but I think it was meeting that weirdo on the track kind of sparked a memory of the flashes and the stalkers at uh, Epsom Girls and then basically led me down a deep dark hole of stalking for a week so I'll try and make the next one a little bit more upbeat eh um I probably will be talking to a friend about his story where it was a little bit too close for comfort um and how he dealt with that and uh also I've actually forgot to tell you guys that I had well, you know, as you know, I'm unemployed, but I, I, I decided to apply for a TV music presenter role this week, so that was a bit of fun. Um, I think I've got that somewhere on the old Facebook or Instagram, so check it out. If you want to join me and follow me, you can on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, at string2cansandart, and if you want to email me, whack on the gmail.com at the end there. That is string2two. Cans and the word uh, at gmail.com. Um, until next time, toodaloo!